Great God, we do praise you, for you are worthy. Everything we have is far better than we deserve. Lord, we thank you for the word, which uh, so often in our own lives and in our hearts we're quick to forsake, but it contains everything we need for life and godliness. And so we pray that as we come before the ministry of your word now, that you would equip us for all that we need, for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1007. We've been studying Hebrews for several months now, and and I suppose there's a little bit of risk in a book like Hebrews because it's a very doctrinal book. It, it, it teaches us a lot of stuff about what Jesus did, stuff we may not have known otherwise. And I suppose that some could read this book and see what it says about Jesus as our great high priest and how he entered heaven for our sakes and sprinkled his blood and how we have access to God. And we know it's all important, but we might be apt to ask the question, well, now what? What do I do with that? It's wonderful that Jesus did all of this, but what do I do with it? We need to realize that's the exact pattern God intended. We have to start with the doctrines of Christianity before we start to live the Christian life. Otherwise, you find, and this is what happens oftentimes, people love a Jesus that they know nothing about. It produces a mindless Christianity that produces spineless Christians when time gets hard. In today's text, we're going to focus on the now what of Hebrews. What do we do in light of everything that Christ has done for us? Let's look at Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19, and we'll see. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When Queen Victoria was a child, she grew up with the tremendous privileges that came with being part of the British royal family. And while she enjoyed the privileges, she did not understand the responsibility that would come for her as she was next in line for the throne of England. And her teachers were trying to prepare her for her future role. And they found themselves frustrated because they couldn't motivate her to take her studies seriously. And so finally, one day, her teachers sat her down 
and said, Victoria, one day you are going to be the Queen of England. And upon hearing this, it was like a light bulb went off in Victoria's mind. The the realization that all of these privileges that she had also came accompanied with great responsibility, and it changed her from that moment on. And she spent her life preparing to be a good leader. You know, thus far in Hebrews, we've seen a lot about the tremendous privileges that are ours in Christ. We've talked about forgiveness of sins and freedom from endless sacrifices. We've talked about access to the throne of grace. We've talked about the new family that's ours in Christ. And admittedly, this has been some weighty theology. In fact, I think it's some of the weightiest theology in the whole New Testament. But it's not theology for theology's sake. You know, sometimes uh, uh, Christians can be guilty of that. Treating theology like it's an intellectual exercise, like it's just mental gymnastics. And we like to debate and we like to argue and it becomes all about theology for theology's sake, but it never really affects our lives. But the author of Hebrews wants it to be clear here that that to understand the theology of what Jesus has done has tremendous impacts for how we are to live. This is a turning point in the book of Hebrews where we shift from explanation of the person and work of Christ to application of it, especially in the lives of these dear saints who receive the letter and are are facing such difficulty. And so we shift from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from instruction to exhortation. Because what we claim to believe must pervade how we live. And in particular, the the author urges his flock to realize three responsibilities that every Christian has because of our privileges in Christ. Before I, I name those, and they're of course in your bulletin as they are every week, but I want you to see something. Each of these responsibilities that we have actually increases the joy of the privileges that we have in Christ. As we uphold our responsibilities, we enjoy the privileges of being in Christ all the more. And so it's not as if, here's here's what Jesus has done, now here's what you go do, but it's all attached. And as we fulfill our responsibilities, we become more and more and more enamored with the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. So I want you to see three things that we are to do in light of all this. And they all begin with, let us. In verse 21, we're told, let us draw near. Second, in verse 23, we're told, let us hold fast. And then in in verse 24, we're told to not neglect gathering together. In other words, we're to continue gathering together. And so we're going to look at each of those three duties, those three responsibilities that are every Christian's job description today. So the first is, let us draw near. And and if you've been here studying Hebrews with us for some time, you know that language of draw near. It's shorthand for coming into the presence of God. 
That's easy for us to take for granted. I suppose that nobody, as you were entering those doors this morning, thought, you know, am I really welcome here? And I don't mean welcome at first Scots. Of course you're welcome at first Scots. But did you think, am I really welcome in the presence of a holy God? You know, you and I may not have thought about it that way. We're a new covenant people. But, you know, for the old covenant saints, for the faithful person of Jewish descent in the first century, that command, draw near, would have been really shocking. You see, the Old Testament message was, in so many ways, due to sin, you have to keep your distance from God. And there were all sorts of visible reminders of that, especially in the temple, in in the Old Testament temple. But nothing more clearly illustrated it than the the big curtain that hung there, separating from the the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It, It was a thick curtain, thick as a man's hand, and it separated the symbolic presence of God from the dwelling of men. And so a faithful Jew would have said, hold on, you're telling us we can just step right into the presence of God? And the author of Hebrews says, exactly. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Look at verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. It's an analogy here between the body of Christ on the one hand and that thick curtain. that that kept men from the presence of God on the other. And as Christ's body was torn upon the cross, you know what happened in the temple, right? That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom as God's way of saying, my children, come on in. Come on into my presence. What was once off limits to you is now yours because you are mine. Under the old covenant, drawing near was primarily a physical act. The high priest once a year would sacrifice an animal and he would take the blood of that animal and he would pull back the curtain and with great fear he would step into the most holy place sprinkling blood every step and he would only stay for a short while. But we live in the time of the new covenant when Jesus' blood has been sacrificed once for all. And so we are invited with confidence into the presence of God. Because of Christ's sacrifice, you don't need mere human priests anymore because Jesus has gone before you into the throne room and he says, come in, my child, come in. And so when we speak of drawing near, we're not talking about drawing near in some earthly temple. That temple has been long destroyed. It's been gone for almost 2,000 years. It's a spiritual act. It's speaking of intimate love and devotion and fellowship with Christ Jesus. It's speaking of of communion with the Lord Jesus in prayer and in his word. And I know if you've never experienced that before, you're going to be looking at me like I'm some crazy mystic. You think you can fellowship with some man that died 2,000 years ago? Yes. And those of you who have experienced it before, you're thinking, how can I have more of that? How can I enjoy more and more and more of the presence of Christ in my life? 
And the text tells us a couple things about how we can do that. Look at verse 22. He says, draw near with a, a true heart, or, or some of your versions are going to say a sincere heart. Do you know the origin of the word sincere? It, it literally means without wax. In the ancient world, sculptors would create their work typically with stone, and, and it was painstaking work, incredibly detailed. But if, if it had a defect, if, if, if the sculptor made a mistake and took a chip out of the, the face or, or some part of the sculpture, it would become worth much, much less. And so an unscrupulous sculptor would take wax and fill in the defects so that they became undetectable. And he would sell something that appeared perfect, but it wasn't. It appeared right, but it wasn't. It wasn't true. It wasn't sincere. That's, that's what sincere means. It literally means without wax. It means honest, genuine, without ulterior motive. That's how we're to draw near to God. Uh, with a heart that, that longs for him. Let me tell you, friends, if, you, if you're here just to check boxes, just to do your duty for the week, but not to fellowship with God, this is going to stay a foreign thought to you, that you can actually enjoy the presence of God himself. You can fellowship with him. Because it, it doesn't happen when our hearts are divided, when our hearts are insincere. It doesn't mean we draw near with perfect hearts, but with united hearts, gratitude, uh, filled with gratitude for Christ's sake, for his sacrifice on our behalf. You know, that's the heart of biblical Christianity, is to draw near to Christ. That's what the Christian does, not just once a year, but every day, as we seek to live more and more of our lives in fellowship with him. You know, that's why some people find Christian worship to be absolutely boring. And that's why churches so often will, will turn it into an act of entertainment rather than an act of reverence, because people don't know how to enter into the presence of God. Do you know when the call to worship really happens? It doesn't happen on Sunday morning at 1040. It happens all throughout the week as you fellowship with Christ privately, as you seek him in your daily life. If you have strayed from God all week and, then, and have not been in his word and have not prayed, it is very difficult to come into his presence and enjoy corporate worship. Drawing near is going to be a foreign thought for you. Or to say it differently, we can't draw near to Christ publicly if we're not first drawing near to him privately with a sincere heart. And then second, he says in verse 22, we're to draw near with full assurance of faith. I don't know about you, but my faith is nowhere near as strong as I wish it was. I've been a Christian for 22 years, and some days I think, why have I not grown more? Here's the wonderful news, is that when it says full assurance of faith, it's not talking about full assurance of the strength of your faith. 
it's talking about full assurance of what Jesus has done for you. In other words, it's about the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. The object of your faith is what makes you able to draw near. And that's the wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus is that weak faith gets the same strong Jesus as strong faith. That's why Hebrews again and again and again is telling us fix your eyes upon Jesus because when you fix your eyes upon you, you're going to say, I don't belong here. I don't belong in the presence of such a God. But if you look to Jesus, what he has done, You can say, praise God, I don't belong, and yet he has welcomed me in anyways. Satan is going to give you a million reasons not to draw near, and there are some of us here who the moment we bow our heads to pray and have a moment of solitude, Satan comes pouring on us, reminding us of our past failures, reminding us of our own unworthiness, reminding us of our own hypocrisy. hypocrisy. And we feel like, how could I draw near to such a God? Charles Spurgeon is really helpful here. Spurgeon says, it's always the Holy Spirit's job to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He's constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of of Christ. And so he says to us, your sins are too great to be forgiven. You have no faith. You don't repent enough. You'll never continue to the end. You don't have enough joy. All of these things are thoughts about self, Spurgeon says, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from self and he tells us we are nothing but Christ is everything. So he says, remember therefore it's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ himself. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ himself. It's not even your faith in Christ that saves you. It's the instrument but it is Christ's blood and merits that save you. And faith simply takes hold of those things. Don't let hopes or fears come between you and Jesus, Spurgeon says. Follow hard after him and he'll never fail you. Beautiful words, isn't it? Christian, even you with your idiosyncrasies and perfection and imperfections and all of our frailties and failures, not only can you draw near through faith in Christ, but you must. And don't think of it as a duty to begrudgingly fulfill, I've got to do my quiet time today. I've got to, I've got to go to worship today. Think of it as a, a blessing to joyfully take part of and enjoy. The God of the universe invites him invites you to himself. It's a responsibility that brings with it awesome privilege. So the first responsibility is to draw near. The second responsibility is hold fast. Hold fast. The the Greek here is interesting. It's the word katakomen. It literally means to echo from. It's the root of our word to catechize. When you catechize a child, what you do is you teach them the same basic truths over and over and over again until they're, in a sense, carved into the heart of the child. 
And Hebrews is saying here, let it be carved into the recesses of your soul, these truths about Jesus Christ. So he says, hold fast. And how are we to hold fast? He says, without wavering. The, the Greek is literally, literally without bending. Don't let these truths become bent or twisted or corrupted. We can't deviate from the truth of what's been delivered to us in Scripture. Now, of course, that had immediate significance for these Hebrew believers because these are folks who left the synagogues and they left the temple to follow Jesus and they lost friends and they lost family members and now persecution's heating up and they're losing privileges and they're losing their possessions. They have a lot still to lose. And they feel this temptation to go back to go back to the old covenant, to leave Jesus behind. If they will just leave Jesus behind, they can go and once again be part, a normal part of society. They can once again in, uh, enjoy life without persecution. They can be normal people again if they'll just leave Jesus. But consider what they would give up. If you reject what Christ has done for you, you lose all access to God. You lose the propitiatory work of Christ on your behalf. And so rather than Him paying for the penalty of your sins, you are saying, I will pay the penalty for my sins. Beloved, you cannot simultaneously reject Christ as He's presented to us in Scripture and be right with God. And so he says, hold fast. Now, you might be here thinking, wait a second, are you saying that we can lose our salvation if we deviate, if we waver from the truth? Well, no, and yes. A tight grip on Christian teaching is not what saves you. It's evidence that Christ has his grip upon you. And Jesus says to us in John's gospel that no one can pluck them out of my hand. And so if you have a grip upon Christ, it is only because Christ had his grip upon you. Holding fast to Christ by faith is evidence that he's holding on to you. And so that's why the end of verse 23 says, he who promised is faithful. If you belong to Christ, he will never, ever let you go. So what happens when somebody lets go of Christ and they go their own way and they begin accepting doctrines that are contrary to Scripture? They prove they never belong to him in the first place. Can you lose your salvation? Not at all, but you can prove that you never possessed what you once professed. That temptation, though, to try to find a form of Christianity that will appease the world didn't die with these Hebrew Christians. That's a temptation that's alive and well today, beloved. That's exactly what so, much, so many professing Christians are trying to do. Hold on to Jesus, but also grab hold of the world. Friends, 
we cannot soften the sharp edges of Christianity to make it acceptable in the world's eyes. We can't try to broaden the narrow way so that it doesn't appear so exclusivistic. We can't change our position on things like biblical morality and sexuality in order to win the approval of the world. When we do that, we have departed from Christianity. It is no longer Christ. You have loosened your grip upon the Lord Jesus. Beloved, you simply cannot reconcile the Scriptures and the world. You can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. But we know that temptation. Did you know that temptation this past week when you spent time with unbelieving family members and and you had opportunities to witness but didn't? Because you didn't want to appear strange. You didn't want to appear an outcast. You know, one of the things the rest of Hebrews is going to remind us of is that as Christians, we are strangers and aliens in this world, and we better get used to it. We're going, in a sense, into Babylon, and we better accept that we're going to look like strangers and aliens because if we are dying for the world's approval, we will turn our back on the Christian gospel. Hold fast, first gods, no matter what it may cost you, because he who promised is faithful. Hold unbendingly to heavenly truths that have been brought to earth through the word of God. Hang on with all that you have. Cling to his promises that he will hold you fast. So we've been told to draw near, we've been told to hold fast, and then finally in verse 24, we're told, continue gathering together. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is an exhortation to continue gathering with the church in corporate worship. Now you might say, I don't see that. It just says meeting together. Couldn't that be any kind of Christian fellowship? If you were to look at verse 25 in the Greek, you'd see that those words meeting together come from the Greek word episynagogin. It's the same root of the word synagogue. What was a synagogue? Well, when the Jewish people began to be scattered around the ancient Near East and and it became unreasonable for them to get to the temple with any regularity, they would establish synagogues, meeting places, where they would gather every Sabbath day for worship. And so when it says don't uh, neglect to meet together, it's saying don't neglect to gather as the people of God. It's picking up on the language that the people of the day would have known. Meeting together doesn't just mean having lunch with another Christian or going to occasional Bible study somewhere. It's speaking of gathering with the church in corporate worship. And so this pastor undoubtedly threw the burning salty tears that pastors feel when they see their flock wandering He's pleading, and he says, you notice that there are now empty seats next to you where people who profess to be believers once sat, but now they have wandered from the faith. Please, he pleads, don't be like them. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Verse 25, where it says the habit of some, 
Habit there doesn't mean they've just gotten out of the groove over the last few weeks. Sometimes we say that. I've just gotten out of the groove of going to church. Well, what happens is the longer we get out of the groove, it becomes a custom. In fact, the word that's translated habit there is ethos, as is the ethos of some. It's the mindset of some. We don't need to gather with the church family. I can, I can be a Christian on my own. I can be a, a hidden Christian, a closet Christian. Yeah, this could have been written as well today as it was 2,000 years ago, could it not? Because you look around and you know people who profess to be believers even just a few years ago, but as Christianity has become more and more at odds with the culture, we have seen more and more people wander from the faith. And as COVID-19 lockdowns came in and made it culturally acceptable to miss church, at least in the eyes of our world, we've seen all throughout the church in America and the church in the Western world, numbers in the church declining. You know, it's a dangerous habit, and it's one that some will never come back from at great peril to their own souls. Let's think just for a couple moments about how important corporate worship is. For one thing, corporate worship is important because it's commanded in Scripture. This passage teaches us that corporate worship is a command from God. I, I hope when somebody says to you, well, where does the Bible say we need to meet together every Sunday? You'll say to them, hey, look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. You see that word meeting together? It means episonagoge. You'll remember that, right? All right, just tell them, just say, trust me, it means meeting together in the context of corporate worship. It's a command from God. It's not something you do only when there is nothing else on your plate. It's not something you do if you feel like it, or if it's convenient today, it's a command from God. This is what the, the church in America, and even some of us, need to repent of these last couple of years as we see corporate worship as just optional. If I don't have any better, better uh, things going on, if my child doesn't have a Little League game, if, if we don't have anything else on our plate, then we will gather with God's people. I, I understand there are times when due to travel or sickness, it becomes necessary to be away from your church family for a Sunday. Beloved, we've got an 82-year-old man in this church who just had a shoulder replacement. He only missed one Sunday. That seems to set the bar for us, doesn't it? There's a difference between a necessary absence and a needless absence. And over the last couple of years, I think a lot of us have begun to blur the lines between those things. Needlessly abandoning the gathering of the saints because we don't feel like it or because we had something better come up may seem acceptable to us, but it is disobedient to the command of God. So I want to say this to you both who are here and those who are watching from home. If church has become something you do, if the gathering of the saints has become something you do only when it's convenient, I want to call upon you by the authority of the word of God to repent and reprioritize the gathering of the saints because God commands it. So that's the first thing, God commands it. Second, it's important because we were made for community. We were made in the image of the Trinity who is a community in and of itself. 
God didn't design Christians to live independently of one another. We're designed to live life alongside each other. That's why every New Testament epistle either is addressed to a church or is dealing with life in the church. That's why there are 59 one another's in the New Testament. You cannot do a one another by yourself, can you? You cannot do one another on your own. John Wesley rightly said, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. Life away from the church may at times seem easier and feel safer. Church can feel dangerous sometimes because you have people who are going to speak truth into your life. They're going to challenge you and at times confront sin. But it is always dangerous to wander away from the people of God. It's like a sheep that wanders away from a flock. It's at its most vulnerable I know many people who have tried the Lone Ranger Christian approach, and it always ends in either aberrant doctrine or immoral Christian living. We need, we need the church. Think of coals in the fire. When coals in the fire remain near one another, they keep each other warm. But if you pull one out and set it on the hearth by itself, it grows cold quickly. That's a picture of the church. That's why, beloved, it's, it's never a good decision. Even if you're going through really hard times, it's never a good decision to distance yourself from the church. I get that. We go through hard things and we just want to be alone. But when we do, we neglect the ones who can lift us up, who, who can care for us and pray for us and help to bear our burden in seasons of difficulty. We were made for community. Third, uh, corporate worship is important because it intensifies our worship. That word in verse 24, stir up, it's interesting. It can mean to stimulate, to, stir, uh, to spur on, or even to incite to riot. You can think of a crowd inciting one another to riot, to mutiny. Well, this is a positive inciting, inciting one another to glorify God. That's what we're supposed to do together is is incite one another, is stir one another up. God's design is that as we gather together, we would intensify and kindle the fires in one another's heart. Martin Luther has this great quote. He says, At home in my own house there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. So it intensifies our worship. Fourth, we need to continue gathering together. It's important because, according to this passage, it's your ministry. It is your ministry. You know, if everyone in here wrote down a list of the reasons you came here today, We'd have some broad-reaching answers. But I wonder if any of you said, you know, I need to get to worship today because Hebrews 10 tells me it is my ministry to encourage my brothers and sisters. I suspect a few of you did because there are some in this church who are relentless encouragers. They're relentless at stirring one another up, laser-focused on that task. That's what this text is calling you to do. When you come to church, it's not all about what you get out of it. It's about investing in one another, gathering together, because you, Christian, have been sent by God to stir up others who need you. 
That's why it can be so selfish to say, I don't feel like going to church today. I'm just not in the mood. Yes, but what gift does your neighbor need from you that you alone could have provided? In an age of selfish individualism, we should go into corporate worship with a commitment to encourage the discouraged, comfort the distressed, pray for the afflicted, and bring the stranger into family. That is what the Christian gathering ought to look like. That's what it looks like to stir one another up to love and good works. And so don't, meet, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. And then look at that last line there. And do so all the more as you see the day drawing near. I suppose in most of our versions, day is capitalized. It's speaking of the day of judgment. Of the final judgment when Christ will return to judge unbelievers and take his people to himself. You and I are closer to that today than we were yesterday. But the world doesn't know that, and so it continues to despise biblical Christianity. It was the case in the first century. And so the threat of persecution with every passing day increased. And it brought a crisis to the church. Will I stay and follow Christ, or will I turn away and seek an easier, more comfortable life? Affliction and difficulty have a way of being sort of a prejudgment day, separating the wheat from the chaff. Some decided following Christ wasn't worth the cost of suffering, and so they stopped worshiping with the saints. Others said, You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I do not know the future, nor do you, but. I think it's reasonable to think that that such a time will come for us. If not for you and me, maybe for our children, for our grandchildren. In which the weekly gathering of the saints could be costly. Make the commitment now that you'll go to church, that you will gather with the saints no matter what it costs. Make the commitment now that you will be in corporate worship, if not just for you, but for your children, because they will likely have more to lose than you and I do. Make the commitment now, because if you form the habit, if you normalize the habit, the ethos of missing church when it costs you nothing today, it'll become the norm if that day comes when it could cost you everything. I know that most of us here enjoy the privileges that are ours in Christ. But, beloved, are you being faithful to the responsibilities that flow from those privileges? Consider how kind the Lord is that each of those responsibilities increases the joy of the privileges that are ours in Christ. Each duty increases our delight in Christ. What a great and gracious God we serve that what he commands is actually for our increased joy and delight in him. How do we apply this text? First, very simply, I want to challenge all of you to heed the call to stir up one another to love and good works. You know, let's, let's end, as a church, let's end the custom of as soon as the benediction is ended, you're out the door and gone. Stick around and encourage one another. 
that's when your ministry begins. And so if you get here just in time for the call to worship and you leave the moment the benediction's over, you're neglecting your ministry. That leads to a second application, which is online worship should never become normal for most of us. To be clear, I am really thankful for those who truly cannot attend the gathering of the saints to be able to to be included. So folks whose physical ailments limit them, for folks uh, for whom there is no local church, I am glad that we are able to encourage those saints. But for most people, that's not what's happening with online worship. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard, you know, it's just so much more comfortable to watch church from the couch with my PJs on and a cup of coffee in hand. If I had a dollar, we could buy the property next door right now. I hate to break it to you, Christian, but God's concern is not how easy or convenient corporate worship is to you. In fact, the easier we try to make it and market it as an easy form of worship, the less worshipful it becomes. There's a scene in the life of King David when God commissioned David to go purchase the property for the future temple. Remember, David couldn't build the temple, but he was to go buy the property for it. So he goes, uh, King David goes to the owner of the property, a man named Arauna. And he asks Arauna, I would like to buy your threshing floor. And Arauna recognizes David and says, listen, you're the king. Take it as my gift to you. And David makes this amazing comment, I will not give the Lord an offering that cost me nothing. That's what we're trying to normalize with online worship today. Offering that costs us nothing. Worship that is convenient and easy and costs us as little as possible. Do you know what that is? That is not worship at all. That's empty sacrifices. Worship ought to be costly. And beloved, if you can physically gather with saints in corporate worship, then that is where you need to be. Third, final application. Let's commit ourselves unwaveringly to the ordinary means of Christian growth. There's so many things available today for our spiritual growth, books and and conferences and all those different things. But so much of what happens for our spiritual growth, we see that here in Hebrews, we see it throughout the scripture, is just the mundane Christian life. Worship, the means of grace, words, sacraments, and prayer. Lather, rinse, repeat. Do it over and over again for years. And that tends to be how God grows Christians to maturity. It's through ordinary means of grace. Again and again, week after week, he slowly matures Christians as they're forged in the fires of mundane faithfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, there is much in this text for us to take home. Father, I pray that we would. I I pray that we would not be a people who have merely enjoyed the privileges of being in Christ, but are negligent of the duties of being in Christ. God, I, I ask that all of us, myself included, would inspect our hearts from the youngest to the eldest in this room. And see, are are we living in keeping with what Christ has commanded from us in the scriptures? 
give us honesty with ourselves and grant us the grace of repentance where it is needed that we may walk 